Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. And today we will be starting uh, in verse 9, where we left it off last, well, I guess three or four weeks ago. You know, God is with us as a church in so many ways, down to the very details we've been seeing recently. Julie and I could hardly be more pleased with, with uh, how, by God's grace, things have turned out, including the one you've chosen almost unanimously last week to be uh, your senior pastor, Dave Hoffelmeyer. He and his young family have a lot to do to make this huge transition for them, and he wants to do it in the right way so they're really centered uh, and not scattered when they begin here, which we've strongly encouraged them uh, to do as well. It's one of the many things that attracted us to him, that under it all, he makes sure he stays centered uh, in his relationship with God and in his relationship with his family. All of which means that they'll be here in six to eight weeks, somewhere between the beginning to the middle uh, of August. Now, you think that's long. Well, when Julie and I went to Dillon Community Church, it was four months after they called us. So the kids could finish school because it was God first, family second, church third, just as it is uh, with the Hoffelmeyers. And most of you are old enough to know just how important that is and maybe to wish that that's what you had done more in past years to make sure that we do everything that we can, how important it is to make sure we do everything we can to, to, to protect this uh, dear young family. We'll keep you posted. And in the meantime... I'll try to keep you fed, at least from up here, speaking of the book of Romans. Last week, Dave focused on showing Christ's love as uh, central to our mission, our mission of knowing and showing the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. And it just happens that this week is the same subject. It's our very next verse in our verse-by-verse exposition of Romans 12, speaking of God being with us down to the very details of what he once shared. We've been looking at the qualities of true Christianity that you'll find in Romans 12. After 11 chapters of uh, like foundational doctrines, Paul goes on to focus on foundational uh, life applications in light of all that doctrine. He goes on to f- focus on the fruit of which the gospel is the root that we've been unpacking for 11 chapters. The works without which faith is uh, dead. Last time we were here, we focused on the number one, the first quality, according to Paul, of true Christianity, and that was humility, if you remember. Eight verses on that at the beginning of chapter 12. And now this is a close second. Romans 12, 9, he says, let love. Same subject as Dave focused on last week. Let love, he says, be without hypocrisy. There's a lot, and then he goes on to say, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. He tells us what to do, and then we're going to see in the second half how to do it. Let love, he says, there's a lot packed in here, starting with the first line, let love be without hypocrisy. The opposite of hypocrisy is sincerity. And so Paul's talking here about the supreme priority of sincerity in our love. 
In fact, the NIV translates it, love must be sincere. It seems that when it comes to the qualities of true Christianity, when it comes to, you know, playing the music of the gospel for the whole world to see, to bearing the fruit that we're supposed to be known by, our second priority, second only to humility in our hearts, is a sincerity in our love. To know and show the love of Christ in this particular way that he focuses on in this verse. Of course, it's the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the first thing that we owe to our kids, to our grandkids, to our friends, even to our enemies, especially to our enemies, as Paul goes on to focus on later. The thing that's most likely to open them up to us and to the Lord uh, is to be sincere in our love, to Owe nothing to anyone, as Paul goes on to say in chapter 13, as he sums up the whole thing. Everything in chapter 12 and 13 is summed up by this, Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another and to love the world. And in this chapter here in 12, 9, the particular quality of that ultimate priority, the quality that's most important when it comes to our love, apparently in Paul's judgment, is that of sincerity. Today I'd like to begin by illustrating this simple teaching to give you a feel for uh, what we're talking about. Let love be sincere. We'll see what it looks like on the outside as the motivation for for addressing the second line where we'll see how it can be true for you, how it can happen on the inside. These things are, you know, as much caught as taught. So we'll start by kind of catching this second quality of true Christianity by way of illustration, and then we'll go into teaching it by way of exposition and life application. But first, what does sincerity look like? Who does it look like? I did a study once on the fruit of the Spirit with a discipleship group, starting with love, and then the next week, joy, and then, uh, or numerous weeks on love, then joy, then peace, et cetera, et cetera. And with each fruit, we started by talking about people we knew who were uniquely gifted to bring, you know, the fruit to life, through whom we could see the Spirit of God moving in that fruit of the Spirit, starting with love, because these things are as much caught as taught. That's what the body of Christ is all about. It was way back in the 80s, midway through the decade, when, uh, as we all know, Ronald Reagan was in office, which was 81 to 89. And in many ways, he was the very picture of it, at least in certain ways. Now, hear me out. I'm not going to advocate any particular, you know, political ideology, but rather a powerful spiritual quality. Reagan was a born-again believer, a man of true Christian character who exhibited one of the priority qualities of true Christianity, and that was his sincerity. In fact, even his enemies not only admitted it, but actually celebrated it when he passed away. It came out in a lot of ways, including the way he spoke. They, they called him, of course, the great communicator. And part of what made him a great communicator was his sincerity in what he said and how he said it. A while back, I was attending a, a meeting of ministers in Houston, Texas, way back. It was back in the 80s. At the same time, we were focusing on this quality of sincerity and love in my discipleship group. And uh, it, it was called the Evangelical Ministers Fellowship. And at one time, Haddon Robinson was the key uh, speaker. 
He was at the time the president of Denver Seminary. He's authored a classic seminary uh, textbook on preaching, and he taught seminary students how to preach for 25 years. Among other things, he told us when we were all listening to him, something that by then, after 10 years of ministry, I wasn't surprised to hear. He said that in many ways, the first, the second, and the third ingredient of communicating effectively is, guess, sincerity. As they say, people need to know how much you care before they care how much you know. They need to hear that you're sincere in your concern for them and in your convictions and that you're not just a politician. We want pastors and preachers, maybe even politicians, at least we did back then, to be genuine and honest who have a sincere interest in us, who are out for our best interests. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. It's the spirit of sincerity rather than duplicity that we respond to because that's what we trust. I found it interesting that when Ronald Reagan passed away, everyone was honoring him, even those who dishonored him when he was alive, even his enemies. Even Time Magazine, they came out with an entire commemorative issue uh, on him. And on the front cover, there he was, his white cowboy hat and that, you know, trademark expression of his, his sincere smile. One pundit put it this way recently, one of his former enemies. I want to commemorate the 100th anniversary of President Ronald Reagan's birth by referencing an observation I made long ago that Ronald Reagan was a unique presidential character because of his rhetorical sincerity. We're trying to catch something here before we unpack the scripture so that it can come through us. Sincerity has always been a fascinating character dimension to me, this person writes. Oversimplified, it means the lack of deception. The great majority of people we meet in a lifetime seem to us to be acting out of utilitarian goals. What advantages for them or what advantages to their policies? Reagan sincerely wanted our best interest to be realized. He might have been wrong about them, but he sincerely wanted that. There's so much we can learn from him these days as we look at this character quality of sincerity from the Oval Office down. In many ways, the proof of the sincerity of Reagan's love, of his sincere interest in the welfare of another, was in how he treated his enemies. How he talked about Democrats, for instance. More often than not, even when he criticized them, it was like there was a sparkle in his eye that said, I don't hate you. We're, we're fellow human beings. Like when he said, Republicans believe every day is the 4th of July. But the Democrats believe every day is April 15th. <laughs> That's a friendly jab in the side of Democrats, right? Did that alienate them from him? No. He even got, to deba- he even got his debating opponent, Walter Mondale, to laugh out loud. His famous one during the first presidential debate, he turned in a very disappointing performance. He was jumbling over his words, Reagan was, and all that. And Mondale nailed him about his age, about his fitness for office, you know, and a whole lot of other things. Reagan was 73 years old, and he went on to become, until recently, the oldest president ever to serve. And the reason he won was that he went on to say this to Walter Mondale. In the next debate, he put the issue to rest of his age with a line that had even Mondale laughing. 
He said, I will not make an issue, age an issue in this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) Just before the assassination attempt, the Democrats were giving him hell. But he refused to dish it back. Though he did jab them with a sparkle in his eyes, even though he had lost 2,100 cc's of blood. He said, within a few minutes after I arrived in the hospital, the room was full of specialists in virtually every medical field. When one of the doctors said they were going to operate on me, I said, I hope you're a a Republican. (laughs) It was Dr. Joseph Giordano, a Democrat who headed the George Washington University Hospital trauma team that operated on Reagan. Reagan said, my doctor looked at me and said, today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans. That was his enemy. Reagan's sincerity, his charity, his grace helped him work closely even with his sworn political opponents like House Speaker Tip O'Neill. He avoided one thing above all else and that is humiliating people. He even helped his enemies save face. Sincere love, grace breeds reciprocity of the same thing of the kind that says today Mr. President we are all Republicans how things have changed in our country recently really what we're talking about today will be how we can do our part to change things for the better in our country How to follow Abraham Lincoln's advice when the country had just been ravaged by civil war and people were calling for more vengeance. But he said in his famous words, no. He said, with malice toward none and charity toward all. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the rights. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds. Are you doing that? What we're talking about today is a good part of what God knows our country most needs. Reagan became a father figure for many. And today on Father's Day, we're going to see how we can become like that as fathers and mothers and children and across as politicians. It's a core attribute of the Heavenly Father, his goodness and kindness toward all. With malice toward none and charity for all, let love, Paul says, be above everything else, sincere. So that's the illustration. That's what it can look like, one of many ways it can look like. And of course, the question is, how do you get it? Well, again, as I said, the NIV translates this verse, let love be sincere. The ESV and RSV translate it, let love be genuine, which is the same idea. The New Living Bible translates it in a way that's good for, you know, for the politician in us all. Don't just pretend that you love others. But the literal translation, the one you'll find in the NASB version, is let love be without hypocrisy. 
This word that's translated hypocrisy is on hypokritos uh, in the Greek. On means without. Hypokritos, of course, is what our word for hypocrisy come from. comes from, as you can tell, by the sound. The word meant literally to answer, and specifically to answer on a stage that is to act. Really, it meant to pretend, just to play act. The best translation, I think, is this. Let love be without pretense. That is, let it be without pretending. Pretending to be one way when really you're another. Pretending to have their best interests at heart when really you've got another interest, your own self-interest, as we all do. When you love without hypocrisy, uh, with hypocrisy, it's for the, all the wrong reasons, which we all do again. For bad reasons, for, for ulterior motives, for hidden agendas that reflect a concern for self rather than a concern for others, truth be told. None of us are exempt if we're honest. In fact, one man said, if I religiously confess myself to myself, I find that the best virtue I have has in it some element of vice. God forgive us. Each of us, when he appears before his fellows, is clothed in a certain dignity. But every man knows what unconfessable things pass within the secrecy of his own heart. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what scripture focuses on, the motives, not just the externals. So what does, what does that look like? Hypocrisy versus sincerity in love. Well, the scripture is replete with examples of the opposite of what the example I began with, of hypocrisy, and so is the world. You may have heard the story about some American soldiers during the Korean War. They had rented a house together and they hired a local boy to do their house cleaning and their cooking. This little Korean fellow had, you know, an unbelievably positive attitude. It seemed like he was always smiling. So they decided to start playing tricks on him. And they played one trick after another on him. They, they nailed his shoes to the floor. Uh, but he'd get up in the morning, put, pull out the nails with pliers, put on the shoes, and he would maintain his excellent spirit. They put grease on the stove handles, and he'd wipe each one off, smiling and singing his way through the day. They balanced, you know, buckets of water on the door and he'd get drenched, but he'd dry off and never fuss time and time again. Well, finally, they became so ashamed of themselves that they, they called him in one day and they said, you, you've had a great attitude. We want you to know that we're never going to trick you again. He, he asked, you mean no more nail shoes to floor? No more. You mean no more sticky on stove knobs? No more. You mean no more water buckets on door? No more. Okay then, no more spit in soup. <laughs> no more spit in soup. That's, that, that's the very picture of what we're talking about today. Let love be without hypocrisy. No more spit in soup as you smile your way through your love. So what are these things that pass unnoticed within the secrecy of our hearts? What is the spit in our soup? What does it look like to love for the wrong reasons? Which is Paul's emphasis here in this verse. As I said, the scripture is replete with examples of this, and it's going to get pretty negative for a little bit here, just as Paul is negative when he says, let love be without hypocrisy, because we're going to see that just seeing the hypocrisy that we can be so blind to 
can like inoculate you against it if you do the right thing with it. But we got to see it. Which is why the scripture is like replete with examples of it. In Philippians 1.8, for instance, Paul said that some preach the gospel hypocritically. In pretense, he said, that is pretending to have people's best interests at heart. But really, he said, it's out of envy and rivalry for the sake of shameful gain, proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. That is, their love was not without hypocrisy because they were doing it for the wrong reasons, out of envy and uh, rivalry and greed. And you can often tell it when a man's preaching like that. It's what most people most dislike uh, in the pulpit, especially these days, when there's like pomposity rather than sincerity and authenticity. Just go to, you know, TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, and you'll find a few such preachers there. You know, the, the Elmer Gantry types with shiny shoes and a bouffant hair, you know, and polyester suits who, truth be told, are out for your money. Some televangelists are like this. Now, I know it's a stereotype. They're not all that way on TBN. Don't get me wrong. But the very thought of it should give us an abhorrence, not just for hypocritical preaching on their part, but for hypocritical living on our part. Hypocritical loving. Because that's what we look like in God's eyes when there's hypocrisy in our love. We come across as some kind of televangelist. So when there's hypocrisy, there's often a kind of rather than what they need to hear. But hypocritical love, pretend love, also shows up not just in the form of uh, pomposity, but in the form of flattery where we say nice things to other people, not just to encourage them like God tells us to, but really to manipulate them. Saying something you don't really believe to get what you think you need, like to get them to like you. Maybe that's hypocritical love. Or maybe you don't tell them what they need to hear. It means everything to you that they care about you so much so that you don't care enough about them to risk telling them the truth about themselves. And so you're really more an enemy than a friend, according to the scripture. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You become their enemy when you kiss them to get them to like you. That's what the teaching is. That's hypocritical. Or there's hypocrisy in, when there's hypocrisy in love, there's a kind of pomposity or flattery or Disloyalty. The Chinese call it honey in the mouth, knives in the heart. We call it gossip. Kissing up to their face maybe, but stabbing them in the back. Some of you may act as though there's nothing wrong to their face, but look what you're spreading behind their back. He who conceals hatred has lying lips. Proverbs 10:18. He who spreads slander is a fool, a betrayer. That is, if there's hatred in your heart, most likely what you're saying about them, this negative, is a lie because you're saying it in the wrong way. In a way that spreads that hatred to other hearts rather than 
malice toward none, and charity toward all. Or maybe it's another kind of disloyalty that reveals some hypocrisy, as in Proverbs 26. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man or woman? There are some people who will promise you the moon, but they end up being fair-weather friends. They're not there for you. Like the scripture says, such friends are like clouds and wind without rain. (laughs) They leave you parched when you need to drink. Proverbs 27.10, do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Hypocrisy and love comes in the form of being buttery. Now bear with me, we're just following Paul's cue here with the negative because understanding the negative is the key to reversing all this. comes in the form of being buttery, as in the form of buttering them up, which is different, a different form of flattery because it can include, uh, uh, it can include it. It's just treating them nicely so you'll get something out of them, which is what some kids do with their parents, right? And you can smell it a mile off when you're a parent, and it's really hard when you sense that in them. It's amazing how they can be so nice when they want something from you. That's what Paul's talking about. Or maybe you've been that way with your parents. Hypocrisy and love can come in so many ways. There's so much more. But the bottom line of all this is that when there's hypocrisy in love, we're more concerned for others than for ourselves. And sincerity in love is just the opposite. Sincerity in love ultimately means not focusing selfishly on me as we instinctively do without God to help us. But we've got to see our need before we'll turn to him. That's the whole flow of this verse. You see it in Philippians 2.3 where Paul tells us the secret of sincerity versus hypocrisy in love. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit. That's what we've been talking about, the pomposity, the flattery, the disloyalty, their snobbery towards those who are rich, and I left out a lot here. Selfishly focus on me. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, that's the first quality from Romans 12, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How do you love sincerely? Become sincerely interested in the interests of others and not just in your own interests. And it will show in your demeanor, much as it did with Ronald Reagan, but it will be in your own unique way. It's like Dale Carnegie said. How many of you remember Dale Carnegie? I know this dates me. I hope I see a number of fans. I'm glad that you remember. He was a believer who became an expert in doing this. He wrote the the famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He said, you can make more friends in two months by becoming sincerely interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. This is sincerity and love. You can make more friends in two months by becoming sincerely interested in other people than by trying to get other people interested in you. And that is because, he said, um, people are thirsty for this. For this kind of love. 
That's what true love does. It's like we read earlier. The great majority of people we meet in a lifetime seem to us as acting out of utilitarian goals. What advantages them or what advantages their policies? Reagan sincerely wanted our best interests to be realized. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but for theirs. If we merely try to impress people and to get people interested in us, we'll never have genuine friends because that takes a sincere interest in them. In fact, it's rule number one that Dale Carnegie lists in How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read this book 50 years ago when I was in middle school. And it changed my life. And the reason I read it is my mother gave it to me because I was an extreme introvert and she was really concerned about me. And it changed my life because I learned how to sincerely love other people. Under it all, I learned that the number one principle of winning friends and influencing people, and what is that? Well, Carnegie said the number one way to show sincere love is simply to become genuinely interested in others. That's true love. He went as far as to say it is the individual who is not interested in his fellow man that has the greatest difficulties in life. You know, I run into so many people who can't stop talking about themselves as though their perspectives and their desires and their preferences were like, like the, the, the central necessity of the universe. It's a selfishness that's infiltrated the church as it, much as it has the culture. It's like Brian Williams, who used to be the anchor of NBC Nightly News. He wrote in a Time Magazine article titled, Enough About You. <laughs> Doesn't that say it all? Ever want to say to someone, enough about you? He talks about social media, what he calls a celebration of self. Americans have decided the most important person in their lives is them. And our culture is now built on that idea. It's the user-generated generation. It is now possible, even common, to go about your day in America and consume only what you wish to see and hear. There are television networks that already agree with your views, websites, iPods that play only music you already know you like, internet programs ready to filter out all but the news you want to hear. These days, it's all about you. But is this what we're supposed to be all about, he says? He says the celebration of self undermines the very foundations of our democracy. Oh yeah, there's a lot at stake here. We need a healthy interest in other perspectives, other viewpoints, in, other, in the other people that they're attached to. <laughs> if we're going to survive as a democracy, and it starts with the church. There's more than meets the eye in Romans 12.10. Let love be sincere. In Paul's negative emphasis, let it be without hypocrisy. Why the negative emphasis? Well, we've seen what it means. We've seen what it looks like. And we've applied it in various ways. But then Paul goes on to give the bottom line application in the very next line where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Rather, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. We know how to abhor what is evil in society. But what about in me? 
Briefly, he's talking not about them, but about us. About what we feel about our hypocrisy. Do we harbor it or do we abhor it? Do we condone it or do we condemn it? The pomposity, the flattery, the disloyalty, the snobbery, the butchery, being so buttery, and through it all, the focus on me. Paul's talking about not passively condoning these things, but like we read earlier, religiously confessing ourselves to ourselves when those unconfessable things pass within the secrecy of our own hearts. Those who are truly sincere are sincerely self-aware enough to catch even the slightest whiff of hypocrisy, of flattery, of disloyalty, of snobbery, of selfishly focusing on me. And that sincerity of conviction will turn into a a sincerity of compassion for them. Let me say it in a different way. They catch the subtlest iniquity, not just in society, but in themselves. And view it as the height of depravity because they're clinging to what is good, as Paul said. They're holding fast to God's goodness, to God's standard of righteousness, who is holy, holy, holy. They're broken by their sin and filled with him as they simply turn to him and call on him for their sanctification just like they did for their salvation. And cling to him who alone is good as we've seen again and again in the book of Romans. What we have here today in a single verse as we sum it up is the bad news and the good news of the gospel. That is, we abhor what is evil in us. That's the bad news. And cling to what is good in him. As we confess the depravity of our hypocrisy, as our stomach turns, you know, at the slightest scent of of spit in soup, he will purify the soup we're serving up. He will exchange the hypocrisy that we so hate with the sincerity that we have learned to love as those who have a whole new value system from the inside out as true believers. As we leave all that and cleave to him alone. Bad news, good news of the gospel. And speaking of people who are like this, like we did in that discipleship group long ago, that's the man you voted for last week as your lead pastor. One who by God's grace is sincere in his love. It's one of the things we are looking for, the main things in the pastoral profile. As one of his references says, he's a man without guile, without duplicity. He's not a televangelist. There's a straightforward goodness and kindness in his heart. But, it, but it's only because, just talk to him, It's only because he understands the priority of brokenness and repentance for his depravity, which is the same as ours. He gets it. 
Because, of course, it's not from him, and it's not all about him. As Pastor Dave will be the first to say, no, it's all because, as the worship leaders come forward, it's because our love comes from God's love as we approach him in the right way, from the love that will not let us go, as we'll sing now, from a love that breaks us in uh, its ocean depths, so its flow, as the words say, may ever richer be through each of us and all of us into a world that's thirsting for just this thing. Let's all stand and sing together.